This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, all around my hat, more folk song writing inspiration. So we just couldn't help ourselves, couldn't resist. I think we've done quite well, actually, because it's been at least two years. <laughs> In fact, I think it's been more than that, because the last time we talked about folk songs, i just finished writing book four of Unveiled, so it must mm. be at least two years, if not a bit more. Yeah. It's just a... Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's an itch, and it needs to be scratched sometimes. <laughs> um, and also, we've both had a chance to read a lot more folk songs and um, derive some inspiration from them. Um, yeah, I'd like to point out we're not the only authors that do this. There are there are many many other authors who derive inspiration from folk songs or who include yeah. them in their books, etc. And we will mention yeah. a few of them as we go through. Yes, um, of course. But yeah, folk songs, folk wisdom, in um, inspirations where you find it. But this is a pretty rich rich vein. Yes, of course. I mean, and there's obvious reasons for why it's a very rich vein. Um, folk songs are catchy, but they also are full of, um, you know, folklore um, and and things along those lines. Um, and potentially the most popular, the most romantic um, or the most terrifying versions of those folklore, because obviously they've been put to song um, and they have survived this long. So there's just a lot there already which is going to be very attractive, particularly to fantasy uh, ghost writers. Sorry, and when I mean, sorry, people who write ghost stories or potentially some ghost writers um, and, you know, uh, people who write horror as well, because there's just so much there to kind of to touch on. Um, and because I think also rather falsely, a lot of people who don't listen to a lot of folk music and who don't engage with a lot of folk music tend to think of it as being quite innocent, quite jovial. Okay. Um, and uh, that's that's not quite right, but we'll we'll touch on that in a minute. Yeah. Um, before we get going, it's been a while since we've kind of done like a writer type catch up as to what we've been working on and you know what yeah. our future goals are. So we're just going to spend a few minutes just sort of talking about that before we get cracking on folk songs. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jules. <laughs> I think you've had a more variety of products. Products? Products? Projects? Products. Projects. <laughs> products. They will one day be products. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, projects. Projects. Um, yeah, it's been busy. Um, obviously, I've finished doing my master's um, and I'm just continuing on with my postgraduate studies so that has involved a lot of writing as well so as most people know you know I've obviously been working on the Hamashia cycle um, and the Kestrel saga um, at, at the moment in terms of sort of the older readership but I've also been working on a lot of things for younger readership and me being me that does still very that's still very much within the same vein of drawing from mythology um, and folklore and things like that you know so I've been working on um, recently my YA um, <clears throat> which involves a smuggler and <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very silly but um i i very much enjoy it and obviously also my children's books um i've got 
a couple on the go at the moment. One of them is finished and that one's being um, sort of queried at the moment. Um, and I've got another one which I'm going to be continuing on for my sort of postgraduate studies. So it's been it's been very busy on that side of things. But also recently, um, and I mentioned this a while ago, um, I am the head writer of a gaming of a startup gaming studio called Enigmatic Studios. Um, <clears throat> and uh, our game, the game that I pitched um, and scripted is going to be available soon um, and that's Moko and the Seven Gates. So I've been working on that and I'm super excited now because all of the, <laughs> because of course I just write the script um, and, and you know, obviously with, with my fellow writers as well, some very talented people and it, it, that was sort of a long time ago that it, it was sort of finished and now I'm seeing some of the actual gameplay, I'm hearing the music um, and the art and it's so beautiful and I'm so excited it's just brought the whole thing to life and uh, essentially it is the story of a uh, it's the story of a cat a very fat pampered cat called Moko who has basically um, been living a very sort of happy pampered life uh, in feudal Japan with his owner Yuki who's a who's the daughter of of probably a, a samurai or, or something along those lines very sort of wealthy happy um, and what's happened is that because of ba because of some sort of yokai demons Yuki has fallen sick and so Moko has basically set out on a journey to collect magic to be able to cure her and so he's just so it's just this fat cat that's sort of running around different sort of realms with the help of um of, of a spirit guide i won't give away too much um and he has to sort of complete these different tasks um and yeah essentially you play as the cat and it's i, I can't wait i can't wait for it to be finished and for it to be available because it's so much fun <laughs> yeah it sounds like a lot of fun yeah so that'll be available on Steam. Um, I think you can play it on both PlayStation and computer, um, but that's not my department. Um, either way, uh, that's coming out soon. So that's something that obviously we've been working on and I'm very, very excited for that to be released. Cool. Um, speaking of releases, have you got any release dates coming up maybe? Or any <laughs> projected release dates? Projected release dates. <laughs> yes. Yes. So at the moment there is the we do have a, a release date for book three of the Hamashia cycle, uh, which is in December. Um, Kestrel, the first the first Kestrel books should be released, should start being released hopefully next year. Cool. So that's th those are upcoming releases. <laughs> Not that I'm like what? trying to get you to sign anything in blood or anything. <laughs> just, just, just so that I know. Just, I just want you to announce this in front of all of these people so we can all hold you to account. But I have witnesses <laughs> and receipts. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what about you, Jules? Um, you've been you've been a busy bee. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, I've had a few little short story projects and things which I've done, um, which I haven't really decided what I'm doing with them yet. But ultimately, mm. it's um, it's definitely good to take a little break sometimes so that you don't get so hyper-focused on one thing. 
Mm. Um, so that was fun. And I am, I think, going to finish off um, the second Unveiled Collection, Crossing Places, in the next the next few weeks. Ooh. And then hopefully that can be released end of July, beginning of August, maybe. Okay. So hopefully, um, I, I know I need to at least get to the end of Kelsey's Choice because it's just sitting there and I know how it ends and I just haven't. I've been Please! <laughs> I really want to know. <laughs> I haven't finished that one yet. Um, Harker and Blackthorn, the first few books are written. Um, they need a final Passover, etc. I think the first one, Slice of Death, which <laughs> in which you meet the gang, uh, will be released end of July, maybe sort of third week of July, something like that. So. Oh, that's so exciting! Because having because I've been reading these books obviously since last year, now. Yeah, I think. Yeah, it's latter half of last year. So. Yeah, so I'm. I can't wait for other people to read it so that I can discuss it. I'm like I'm. I'm looking at you in particular, Matt, because I feel like Matt and I, in the past, we've we very much have fought <laughs> over Kieran versus lucas but i feel like we're gonna find such a happy middle ground with steve <laughs> so, so <I've... laughs> we will see um i mean i've talked about harker blackthorn a little bit but i haven't really gone into very much detail what i will say is that it's a step away from unveiled in the sense that unveiled was intended originally for a young adult audience although it seems to have like run the gamut from people from 13 all the way up to sort of in the 70s so that's really weird <laughs> um but this one i've just gotten i don't necessarily want to write this for young adult i want to write this as an adult urban fantasy so yeah. um amy's grown up she's in her early 20s and it takes a couple of other characters from the unveiled series who are minor characters and there are cameos from the other characters but you absolutely don't have to have read the original series in order to enjoy no. these i don't think no i don't think so i think it it adds something if you have but you can completely understand and enjoy the series without yeah i mean you can definitely i mean you can go back and read them if you want and it i think it's a change of pace as well because they're I've tried to be really strict with my word counts so that you're not ending up with this massive sprawling 250,000 word epic each time. <laughs> so um, they're shorter books, um, sort of 80 to 95,000 words, but you're going to get them more regularly once I start releasing them in July. So you should, yeah. so you'd get the first one and you should only have to wait a month to the second one kind of thing. Yeah. Theory. And crypt they, are, they are very good. <laughs> cryptids. Cryptids as well, guys. Yes. So unexplainable <laughs> monsters and things which have possible scientific explanations and you know, <laughs> magic and psychic abilities and all sorts. It, it's I, I find them fun. Although they're getting progressively darker now. So. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really it's very noticeable if you sort of compare I mean book one def definitely has its moments which are quite dark and stuff like that, but <laughs> It's just been reading it and watching things get sort of progressively worse and progressively more scary. Um, I I just think people are going to love this series. I've I've been enjoying it so much. Cool. So I'm on. I'm sort of two thirds of the way through. In fact, yeah, two thirds of the way through book nine at the moment. It's very rough at the moment, and I'm hoping to finish it in the next couple of weeks. Um, I've got a plan for the other books in the series. I'm not going to tell you how many. Um, but we're not talking hundreds <laughs> or anything, so don't worry. And I guess 
this one in some ways it's a, it's darker and in other ways it's a lot happier so it's there's this really weird sort of jarring yay something has worked out everything's really happy and at the same time death death and destruction and misery <laughs> I love that you can't just ever have it. It can't ever just be, and now for a happy bit, like, no, no, we've got to contrast that. There's got to be some, some suffering. Yeah, apparently that, that's what I have to do. So um, mm. it's it's great fun. I've drawn on folklore and mythology and stuff from wherever I'm setting in the world, but it is mostly mm. sort of UK and, and Irish mythology. Um, but with a few little bits and pieces from from places like Romania and Vietnam and stuff. Mm. Yeah, where necessary. They're culturally yeah. appropriate when I use them, put it that way. Yeah. Because that's yeah. kind of one of my big bugbears. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm also planning, for the people who are more interested in my historical fiction, I've also got plans for some more King's Night books and for another series that's set in the 17th century. Ooh, my dad is going to be pleased because he was... <laughs> <laughs> he finished... <laughs> reading uh you the the first three kings night and he's like are there gonna be any more and i was like this is him this is him being enthusiastic <laughs> oh um, yes the intention is there will be some more but um i've been so completely sucked into harker and blackthorn that i'm like i've got the plan i'm doing the research i'll get to it i'll get to it it's like maybe you should take a break once you get to sort of book book 10 before you start book 10 take a break finish off a few other projects and then go back yeah i've probably just really terrified any potential readers with the idea that there's going to be at least 10 books <laughs> <laughs> not not counting any little novellas which are gonna pop up oh, yeah. yes the novellas <laughs> The novellas, which start out as novellas or short stories. Oh, don't! I really, I really cannot afford to have an entire like series of novels that are companion novels that really don't advance the plot, but are from someone else's perspective taking over this time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to live long enough to do that. <laughs> um, yeah, and you know, this is going to be an annoying thing to say, but I will mention it. Off the back of Harker and Blackthorn, I have also got a secret squirrel project, which I can't really share at the moment. Oh! But I'm hoping that there will be some news of that once I release um, the first book in July. In fact, I'll, I mean, I'll tell Madeline when we're off the air, but <laughs> she can wait. I was going to say, I, you, you, it's not going to go down if you make me wait that long. <laughs> I will badger you. <laughs> And that, that's the mild version. Yeah. <laughs> Jules, Jules! In fairness, I've, I've got it coming because I've sent Madeline messages in the middle of the night literally just saying, Kestrel, question mark. Yes! In, in possibly the most sinister way possible without sort of breaking into her house and writing it on her wall in red paint. It is. I, I like, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and be like, oh, I just got it. Oh, I, you know, get up, you know, call of nature or something like that, and then I'll I'll just sort of look at my ma- <laughs> my phone, and it'll just go, Kestrel. So yeah, we <laughs> the uh, the messages come through. Uh, I I know my uh, <laughs> I know the expectations which are being placed upon me. <laughs> yeah, I mean. 
in some ways I could kind of do with Madeline just writing an entire Kestrel series and then just letting me binge it but at the same time I'm too impatient to wait for that as well <laughs> I'm working as fast as I can <laughs> but, but you're not you keep going off and working on other things and I get that you have to do it for sanity's sake but the greedy reader in you doesn't understand this and will not accept it Look, at the moment I'm only working on Kestrel and the Hamartia cycle not that I don't want the Marsha cycle in fairness, but <laughs> yeah, if I have my way, I just keep Madeline in my basement. And, yeah. yeah, it's coming to that, isn't it? <laughs> Eventually. I don't have a basement, I'd like to point out. You build one, yeah. especially. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> That's the only thing stopping you. <laughs> it's like, well, I don't really have anywhere to keep her. Um, no. I suppose I could finish a lot of books in prison, but, you know. <laughs> okay, okay, so that, that's the... what we've been up to over the last, um, well, last year, year really. or so. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, um, lots to look forward to. Um, and I hope you guys are excited. Now, on to the main event. Yes. Um, just a little recap. I'm sure we covered this in our original folk song podcast, but mm-hmm. um, I, so I've got rules, inverted commas, but there are, there are sort of guidelines around folk songs as to what you need to know going in. Mm-hmm. So um, just a recap. Basically, like as we've said with myths and legends, folk songs have evolved and shape-shifted as they've aged. So you can take a folk song that someone will date back to the 1900s and mm. then it's not that i mean you, it, there may not be surviving copy but there's a good chance that the story the very essence of the folk song actually goes back several hundred years more than that yeah. it may even go back past the medieval era kind of thing except yeah. that obviously the language would have completely changed and the context would have completely changed but the seeds of the story um so very like fairy tales like the essence of the story of, of cinderella for example um is the, the the one that we're most familiar with, sort of French, uh, late eighteenth century, but ultimately that that story originated hundreds and hundreds of years before that. It's just it's changed so much that we probably wouldn't recognise the original in the same way. But the heart of the story is still there. Yeah, absolutely. It's <sighs> folk songs are really really interesting because as I've said, you know, that they tie into something which is a lot older. And that's actually also why folk songs are really, really enjoyable to listen to now, because on the surface level, there there will be a story. And then what'll happen is that you can look at things on a minute level, little decisions, little choices which have been made with certain imagery, certain words or things like that, which hint to something even older, which has just sort of been kept, perhaps knowingly or not knowingly. Um, and that's really interesting. It, you sort of end up doing an archaeological dig into a folk song and I, I can get really obsessed with it. I, I can go all day. Yeah, uh, it's really interesting because... <laughs> The, the whole point is the the tunes are simple so that anybody could really sing them or would remember mm-hmm. them and they sort of coalesced around an essential essential truth or story um, 
and that story was generally really old it was you know the stories that that survive are the ones that are very human stories that anyone in any era could with new context access mm-hmm. so it's like we've talked about scarborough fair um before and the fact that it's about a series of impossible tasks and why they're impossible in the context of that song um yeah which was probably a much much older song originally um so the elf and knight was it, it's really noticeable that the elf and knight which is sort of three or four hundred years older than scarborough fair we think yeah actually uses almost exactly the same impossible tasks in the song yes although what? there's a definite bad guy in the elf and knight whereas in scarborough fair we don't know whether it is the potentially dead lover or the lover who's who's done the jilting kind of thing yeah absolutely it's i also get i get sort of very interested because i i love it whenever you get two versions of a song and one involves a fairy and one involves a dead person and i'm like oh it's the same but also not the same but also the same and i i get needlessly (laughs) excited my poor students have had to really put up my my final lecture for them was literally just and now folk songs because we were doing fairy tales and so you know it was appropriate to sort of fairy tales and folklore i should say so i <laughs> had to put up with like a half an hour lecture all about that i was super excited some of them uh, were less so <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so uh yeah just going back as madeline said about you know sometimes a fairy shows up or sometimes it's the devil or sometimes it's it's a ghost there wasn't as much as we've said before there wasn't as much distinction between all those things they all came from the other world um so this idea of separating vampires ghosts fairies etc out into different different subsections if you like and putting them in different places is a relatively modern one yeah absolutely um and folk folk, you know folk songs are quite a good resource for uh discovering that (laughs) yeah so it's (laughs) There's just a lot there, which I think <laughs> is probably why we'd like to come back to it, because there's so much to mine, Jules, so many precious stones. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, don't be deceived by the simple exterior or the easy tune, because folk songs are not twee, sweet and old fashioned. Um, and if that's all you're taking from them, you're really not paying that much attention. Yeah. Uh, folk songs are nearly always deeply political. They focus on sex, death, and usually murder. <laughs> yes, um, absolutely. It's <laughs> the amount of time you listen to a folk song and you're like, "Oh, this is nice," and then you actually listen to the lyrics, <laughs> and it's like, "A mother has killed her two children." <laughs> yeah, it, that. I mean, the whole matricide thing, or. Um, a man killing his his sweetheart or whatever yeah. turns up frequently in folk songs which you know in fact this is something that we also might it's worth us saying even though i'm sure we've said it in other podcasts mm. is that in folk terms a love song has a tragic end and generally ends with one party abandoning the other or dying or one party murdering the other in a jealous rage <laughs> yeah whereas absolutely. a song that doesn't explicitly have any of those things is it's a song about love it's not a love song so when we say a song about love it's something that could potentially have a happy ending but a love song in folk terms is never going to have a happy ending no no um (laughs) so with that kind of established let's 
have a look at some very particular songs and we're going to sort of exp we're going to talk a little bit about them we're going to explain how we have taken or found inspiration within them um, we've each got several we'll hopefully have time to get through all of them but Jules why don't you start us off yeah um fair disclosure guys a lot of mine in fact if not most of them <laughs> are in fact in in either uh Grilge or or gaelic so either scottish gaelic or irish gaelic um i will i'll do my best with the translations but they don't always really translate terribly well <laughs> into english um so the first one uh, a girlig dowchik and mouth and rear is a love let me home to my mother and I love this one because it's really atmospheric. Basically, it takes the old folk tale of a girl sort of ignoring warnings by her mother and walking by twilight. Um, now, this is a classic sort of fairy tale myth trope <laughs> where you, you don't do that because girls who stray off the path, girls who stray by twilight kind of thing, bad things tend to happen to them. Um, mm. This particular girl, she's unnamed in the song, ends up walking down by the waters uh, of a loch, basically, and she comes upon an Ish Uske. An Ish Uske is a water horse. Um, so not like a Kelpie. The, kel the thing with the Kelpie is that they'll persuade you onto their back and then they will dive into the water with you and you can't get free because once you're on a Kelpie's back, you can't get off unless the Kelpie decides you can and then yeah. you drown. Um, and not like a puka. The puka is all about, as I think Madeline said before, it's a hellish ride, as in you get on its back and, and it will scare the shit out of you for several hours and eventually it will just sort of dump you off in a field somewhere. <laughs> um, and, and Esh Uske is generally a meat eater. So it, it pulls itself out, up out of the water and attacks you. And it'll either drag you into the water and start eating you as you drown, or it'll just not bother with that bit and just start eating you. That's nice. Woo. So very, not very pleasant. Not very pleasant um, fairy creatures at all. But in this song, um, the Ish Uske is looking for a bride. And there's this young girl walking by twilight over the near the lock as the mist is, is fall, forming on the surface. The Eshuske appears out of the water and sort of makes his intentions known. And the girl's like, yeah, I don't think I really want to marry a water horse because ultimately I'm probably going to drown. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you don't really understand that I actually need air kind of thing. And also I'm not big on you eating me when things don't go your way. Um, and so there's a sort of riddling back and forth between the girl and the Eshuske where she has to trick him into releasing her. And... A lot of what she does is she stands her ground. She doesn't get frightened and start crying or beg him to let her go. She just says, it's not in your best interest to do any of this. Um, for one thing, my family aren't going to approve as you, of you as a husband. Thank you for your kind offer kind of thing, because you, you're polite to the Shea. Mm -hmm. Even if you really don't like what they're doing, you have to be polite. <laughs> and she's like, uh, "My, I don't have very much of a dowry. My father would feel it wasn't right. Uh, my father would also not be sure about wedding one of the land, one of the sea kind of thing, blah, 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 carrying on. Um, you know, my mother can't do without me. She's beginning to grow sick and she has a little one at home. And finally she gets the part about her brothers and she's she's kind of like, yeah, I've got six brothers and they will kill you. And then she describes in graphic detail what they do to this <laughs> And the Ishuske kind of goes, yeah, maybe I'll just go back in the water then. <laughs> I see you're not a suitable bride. <laughs> 
but it's got a it's got a lovely slightly eerie tune it sounds quite pleasant until you unravel the words and, and you realize it's gonna love let me home to my mother or else all the way through the song <laughs> um and it is one that i kind of i i played on some of the themes and the ideas when i wrote betwixt and between and i, I know it's going to be something that i come back to again in a mm. future harker and blackthorn book as well because it's it's just absolutely rife with um, with rich metaphor <laughs> and folklore. Yeah. I that's a <laughs> I do like that already. <laughs> I'm excited now. I'm <laughs> Weirdly enough it it, uh, it sort of reminds me of that small bit in um uh, a court of silver flames where where it wasn't a um it, that that was actually supposed to be a kelpie, wasn't it? Yeah. Where I she mean, gets pulled under the water. Yes. Yeah. So, um, obviously, drawing again on the same. Yes. The on same the, sort on... of uh, body of law. Yes. Okay, fantastic. Okay, so I'm actually going to the one I'm going to touch on is that I thought I'd start with something fun and then just get steadily worse from there. <laughs> um. And I thought that I'd actually start with a French folk song, um, which is just one of my, it's one of my favourites. It's one of the first sort of uh, folk songs that, um, French folk songs that I ever learned. And it's Au Clair de la Lune, uh, By the Light of the Moon. Um, So for those who don't kind of know know the song, it, it tells the story of a man or a, yeah a young a young man or or a group of men who go to their neighbors uh, who go to their friend's house um because they need to borrow a quill they need to write um a letter so they go up to the window and they shout to the window they say my friend uh pierre my my friend peter um please lend me a quill i need to write a letter um, I had don't have it. my candle is dead and I haven't got any light, so please can you open your door for me for the love of God? Um, and and to this, Peter responds basically saying it's the middle of the night. I don't have a quill. I'm in bed. Go somewhere else. <laughs> Go to the neighbours because I think she's awake because I can hear her in the kitchen and she's trying to light a, fly- a fire. So then uh, the kind of the song, some versions of the song then go on. Sometimes it's just those first two um, uh, verses. And then sometimes the song goes on where the the young man, he does actually, he goes and knocks on the door. um, And once again, he knocks on the door and he's like, please let me in. Uh, And the young woman sort of basically, she does. And, you know, they, she finds a pen for him. She puts on a light. and there's there's an implication as well at the last in, in the last verse, which is that uh, he goes over to her house. She's a young brunette, um, and the way that the verse sort of goes is that uh, you know that by the light of the moon they could barely see, so the quill was looked for, the light was looked for, um, but with all that looking, no one's quite sure what was found. But we do know that the door closed itself behind them. <laughs> so there's there's a good implication there that uh 
that that sex was had um <laughs> with the quill now, kind of being like but, a, yes. <laughs> a metaphor all the way through for a penis yes <laughs> yeah now the reason i love this song so much is because of the history of of why it was actually written so this is something that my mother told me a long long time ago um but <laughs> essentially the the cre- <laughs> the writers um had been out drinking they'd been out drinking they'd had a lot and a lot and a lot to drink and they cuz uh, okay, so this is one of the the theories of where it comes from but actually we don't really know who the composer and the the lyricists are but this is sort of one of the stories of of where it was originally from which is that the two authors had been drinking a lot um and they'd been kicked out of the the pub and so what they did was that they went over to their friend's house so that they could continue drinking because in france as well when you welcome someone in um you offer them an aperitif you offer them you know a drink usually so what had happened was that they went round to their friend's house and they're like, hey, let us in. We need a quill. We need to write some stuff down. It's really important. And their friend who was looking down at them from the window was like, no, you're here to drink all my booze. Bugger off. <laughs> and sent them on their way. Um, and so in revenge, they, they wrote this song <laughs> about him. Which then sort of implies that uh, that maybe they they got it on that that by sending them away they actually went and had a better time of it. So um, I just really really like that song. It's 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 such a jolly little song when you hear it and then <laughs> and then you kind of look a bit deeper into it and it's a bit mischievous. Yeah, I mean it, it's again it's falling into the folks folk well, folk song uh, the folk song ideal of you know being about one of the four subjects which is generally sex and you know the carousing that goes with it yeah Um, so great but yeah you're right that is actually quite a cheerful song really it is it is well i thought i'd start with a cheerful one because everyone says i only ever listen to really uncheerful ones and i thought i'll start (laughs) with that lull them into a false sense of security and then just get darker from there i've got to say if you want one with a really lovely tune it's very difficult to find one with a lovely tune that also um is is somewhat suitable for children <laughs> yeah way. um i find the same thing certainly with the irish one. I, in fact i think i was kind of like nope can't find i can't find a, an irish song that's actually at all cheerful and when i finally did i had to text madeline immediately and say i've just <laughs> found an irish song in gaelic about a house as big as a roof beam so, <laughs> yeah and i was like sounds fake <laughs> <laughs> And there's also the one about the cow and the sheep, but um, never mind. <laughs> uh, right, my my next pick is probably one of the most famous Irish folk songs, and that's Dulamon. Um, I love Dulamon so much. It's lovely. It's got a lovely peppy tune. It sounds really, really happy. It's like Dulamon the Bindabu, Dulamon the Gira, Dulamon the Faraga, Befera Biran Eden, which means. Um, Basically, Dulamon is Irish for a particular type of seaweed. Bear in mind, there's something like 40-odd words for seaweed in Irish. But this is a particular mm. type of seaweed. And it's um, seaweed, Irish seaweed, seaweed in the sea, the finest in all of Erin, the finest in all of Ireland. And it's like, yeah, that's, that sounds really, really cheerful. And then you go through the, the verses and everything gets a little bit sort of like, it's silly, but there's a weird whimsy and darkness to it. Um I won't go through all the Gaelic, but basically 
what this song with the lovely cheerful tune is about it's a famine song so basically the reason the song was there identifying the different types of seaweed was because these were the seaweeds you could eat safely um and so this was during you know the great hunger whereby people were starving in their thousands and you know they lost another million um from mm. ireland to immigration because they were desperate to find somewhere that had some food uh, the food that was in ireland was being shipped over to victorian england under armed guard while well, you know people literally starved to death and you know all the the terrible things that happen around serious famine were, were happening um so disease and probably a bit of cannibalism to be honest and some mm. some other really really nasty shit and it you know it's such a cheerful song but this is something that the irish and the scottish tend to do is they take misery and they make it sound really cheerful but the actual the actual contents of the song is really really sad so because of the basically the obviously the famine happened because the Irish were relying heavily on potato crops. There was a potato blight wiped mm. out the crops all across Ireland for several years. And yeah, people starved. And if you were ha lucky enough to live near the sea, then at least you could identify these types of seaweed and eat it. Yes. So that's what that lovely, cheerful song is about. Well, that's just... <laughs> oh, God, I did not know that. I just thought, oh, yeah, cheerful song about seaweed and... <laughs> It, it it does it sounds like it because when you when you get onto the verses it is kind of like uh the yellow seaweed goes to visit the i think it's the royal seaweed or whatever and it it sounds like um two clans coming together and forming an alliance so yeah. it may have its origins in an even older song but it was adapted to be a famine song so people would know what to eat yeah that's um i haven't really used this one specifically but i think it's something that's always in the back of my mind as an encapsulation of a, a really intense political and socio-economic event mm. and how you can you can boil it down into a simple formula for people to, to swallow so that you're not like screaming something in someone's face basically with your work yeah yeah absolutely it's um it's a really interesting concept as well just just the idea of adapting a song to in a way that rhymes in a way that's jolly in a way that's easy to remember which is also about kind of instructions um because that yeah. is also something that you see in a lot of folk songs and stuff like that as well and, and because folk songs also particularly you know sea shanties and worker songs and, I, and i'm, I'm going to talk about another song in a minute which i think actually uh might have some sort of origins with thatching but that's just my theory i'll talk about that in a minute um but you know these songs also had the purpose of keeping people in time of informing people not just entertaining but actually you know um helping with work and stuff like that so folk songs have a real you know they're not just entertainment they they have a purpose within the community which is you know about embetterment about teaching and things like that and i think that that's actually sort of one of the things that has also provided their long long levity really yeah definitely and also explains why they're so changeable yeah i mean a lot of us don't have as much use for day-to-day -day folk wisdom as you know we would have done even a hundred years ago um but i think it's something that's worth still hanging yeah. on to because you never can tell <laughs> hmm <laughs> So if you learn Dulaman, you know which types of seaweed you can eat. <laughs> yeah. 
you'd have fun fact you'd have to be pretty familiar with the sea around around the irish coast as well i think <laughs> with identifying seaweed. i mean a lot of seaweeds are edible but don't try bladder rack or anything like that okay <laughs> no <laughs> Um, so because I just mentioned the um, the thatching stuff, um, I think the song next song I'm going to talk about is Riddles Wisely Expounded. Yeah. Now this I really really like this song. There's several versions of it, uh, but essentially it is the song uh, which basically involves three sisters, and in different versions, um, you'll get different things. But the version I'm going to talk about is a a knight, which is actually the devil in disguise, appears at their door one night. And the three sisters let him in. Which, first of all, that's, you know, can we have a little bit of an eyebrow raise there? Because, (laughs) like, ooh, okay, all right. So immediately something is going on there. So the three sisters let him in. Um, the eldest sister sort of entertains him. The younger, the the middle sister makes his bed, and the younger sister actually gets into bed with him. So she sleeps with him, and she's described as being sort of very bonny and stuff like that. Um, so they've slept together, and then the the knight or the devil turns to her, and he basically says, "Right now, you will be mine. You will be mine unless you can answer me these nine riddles." And he poses her, he poses nine riddles to her, to which she responds to each one correctly. Um, And at this, you know, Dawn then sort of rises, she's answered all of his riddles, he bursts into flames, revealing the fact that he was the devil himself, and vanishes, and the sisters are safe. So before I even get into sort of looking at the the kind of, some of the lyrics and stuff like that, the story is immediately fascinating. Because rather than with a lot of other sort of later kind of folk tales, which is, oh no, she slept with him, she's, you know, she's she's ruined herself, now she must face the consequences of it, kind of thing, which you do get in folk songs and a lot of fairy tales. Here instead, we have a young girl who, who gets her night of fun and then has no consequences because she's very smart. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, she's able to dispel the devil. I, I, I just, I really, really like that because there's, and there's also this sense of great independence. The women let him in. They have their fun with him, each of them in, in different ways. You know, there, there's a there's a great sense of intention here. They are trying to win his attention and, and he gets, and, and the youngest sort of succeeds. Um, but then she will not be captured by him she will not marry him and i think that the sort of him turning becoming the devil is, is a little bit of a later one i think it's very likely that he might he was probably originally a fey sort of creature um or maybe even just a regular man who then basically says now you will marry me and she says yeah. no i, I mean won't. i've seen quite a lot of um, versions of this one and i i really like it i like all the variations i, mm. I agree that the devil him being the devil is kind yeah. of like an added on thing later I've seen one which yeah. I think was a later version whereby he is just a knight, but he doesn't want to marry her. So she is the one posing the riddles to him and she catches him out on the last one. So he has to marry her. I've I've seen uh, a version, and, you know, okay. they're almost the same riddles. So I think we can assume they come from the same source, the songs. I've seen one where the yeah. stranger turns up at the door and the mother lets him in and tells her daughter to make him welcome. She's not planning for her her youngest daughter to make him quite that welcome <laughs> and the the man says finally <laughs> you know you've obeyed the hospitality laws you know basically that's what he's saying 
um, I would like to reward you. I am the lord of yeah. a great land. So he grants each of the three sisters a gift, essentially their heart's desire. And the youngest said mm. her, her heart's desire is to marry him um, because then she would be a great lady of, of his great land. And he says, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can only take um, as my as my bride someone who is witty as well as Bonnie kind of thing. And she laughs and says, well, tr- try me. Yeah. And he asks her riddles and she answers all of them. And he's sort of overcome because he's been terribly lonely as lord of this great land. And it turns out that he is deaf and his land is the land of the dead. And she's already worked it out and decided that she wants to rule by his side. So he accepts her as his equal and they ride off together. Um, which I really like. Cool. I mean, that's echoes of the Persephone myth, isn't it? So, Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's that's very cool. But the thing that um, sort of I find very interesting is one of the refrains, which is yeah. lay the bent to the Bonnie Brun. And there are so many theories about what the hell this is supposed to mean. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm just going to go through, I'm going to go through a few of them um, and then sort of basically tell you what my theory is. So one one very popular theory is that it's not actually meant to be bent yeah. it's meant to be barren you know meaning baby or child um suggesting and some people say that means that basically you're su- it's suggesting you you lay the child among uh the bonny broom which is a flowering plant which you did use to make brooms out of um which warded off the faith yeah absolutely so you know it, it might be about abandoning them or it might be about laying them in among the bunny broom to protect them away from evil magic um broom was as we've also said you know used to actually make brooms um so there is also the possibility that it's actually about beating the child (laughs) you know particularly if you look at this song and you've got the sort of the 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 youngest daughter acting out in that way it might be a little thing it's like well she she needs to have a she needs to sort of get get um whipped a little bit um so there's that that that's another theory um if we if we don't if it's not ben and we look at the word bent as well you know bent can could be in reference to common bent which is obviously a type of grass um but there's the possibility that it was that if it was if it was woven with broom it might have been some kind of protection spell um there's also the possibility, and this is a theory that I have, that actually it was to do with thatching houses, because bloom was sorry, broom was used to thatch houses in the old day, um, as was grass. So lay the bent to the bonny broom, sorry, yeah, lay the bent to the bonny broom could have actually been a, a chorus or a reference to or a refrain to to sort of the working to building a, a you know to building a, a roof which could also have been about building a home building a house um so there's there's that possibility as well which is something you might do you know you might sort of redo the roof if you're getting a new bride or something like that so that's one of my theories um alternatively it was a massive sexual innuendo yes that absolutely yes that, that's the next one is that it's a massive sexual it, because i mean if you look at the context of the song with the third daughter going into bed with him um there's yes there's the whole lay the bent to the bonnie broom where it's like let's attach a handle to the broom now if you stick a handle into a bunch of broom that was obviously very crude symbolism and it's still crude symbolism used today among wiccan practitioners for a penis going into yeah. the vagina 
So, yeah, it, I mean, it, it kind of echoes the song Bonnie Brown Hair. You know, we'll hunt my Bonnie Brown Hair together. Is there enough lead in your gun? Wink, wink. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, which is which is obviously the next popular one. Um, there's also, you know, other sort of ideas about that. Alternatively, it might be about preparing the Bonnie Broom. So obviously, Broom was heavily associated with women and brides in particular. Um, so it could be in reference to a wedding, or it could be in reference to um, you know this sexual act, as as Jules has just mentioned there. Um, and there's also the, this is a this is more of a kind of um, one, but bent could also mean um, inclination or disposition. So there is the possibility that the chorus could mean blame the inclinations on the broom. In other words, uh, blame what's happening on women. <laughs> Or that this is this is this is the inclination of women. Women are kind of in charge here. Um, so that there's there's a lot of possibility there, and the problem is that we we just don't know. But there is a lot that you can kind of see within that. And I personally really really like this folk song because of that. I like that it's other variants. I like the fact that ult uh, ultimately. You know, the the younger sister succeeds in in whatever venture she has, whether that be to escape the night, um, or to get him. Um, and I just I just really like it. it. It's it's a jolly song ultimately. Yeah, and it is quite a, a quite a cheerful one, really, with no real harm it coming is. to anyone except maybe the night, <laughs> depending, <laughs> depending on the version. But yeah, yeah, I mean that's one where the origins are so old we don't really know where it's come from, um, but no. it certainly goes back as far as the Elfin Knight, which is one of the oldest ballads we've got. Yes. Um, okay, so mine are a little bit more political and a little bit more recent. <laughs> I've got a pair together, actually. One of them's in English, one of, because we've lost the old translation, and one of them mm -hmm. is in Irish, and I'm mentioning them both together uh, simply because they kind of cover very similar ground in their themes. Um, mm -hmm. So, Oro Shedavaha Walia, uh, which means, <laughs> oh, you will be coming home. And it's sung very, very sarcastically. <laughs> it's Oro Shedavahawalia, Anisha Harkton Tauruk, which means you'll be coming home when the summer is over. And it talks a little bit about, if you go into the verses, it talks a bit about how uh, the generally the sons and daughters are off fighting the foreigners. So they've either mm -hmm. been co-opted into a war that isn't of their making or they're trying to get rid of the incomers in their own land. And, you know, it's quite an old song, but by the time you get through to, like, the second verse, it's very clear they're talking about the English. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a surprise. I mean, it's, it's got to be at least sort of 400 years, 300 years old, I would have thought, because, I mean, they... they they um, mention Grania Nichmahil, which is um, Grace O'Malley in English. And, mm -hmm. you know, she was the famous pirate queen who, you know, met Queen Elizabeth the mm first. -hmm. And yeah. so you know, to have that as a reference in there, it's, it's probably relatively, we're talking like well after the Norman Conquest, well after, you know, the, the way the Tudors treated the Irish was not great either. No, uh, There was a lot not. of resentment. There was a lot of, foreigners get out and it, it's it's quite cheerful and rowdy and you can imagine lots of people drinking to it but the way it's sung traditionally and every time I've heard it sung by Irish groups is very very sarcastic as in you'll be coming home but it's kind of like it won't be the land that you knew 
Yeah. So there's a bitter edge to it. Um, the Foggy Dew was originally from a much older Scottish tune and then mm-hmm. got co-opted into Irish and it was sort of rewritten to commemorate the Easter Rising. I, I really like it and it, it's got lots of amazing imagery in that, but it's sort of set around the, the First World War sort of time and the mm. Easter Rising in Ireland where you had the people, you had the young men of Dublin who came together and they just, gen, you know, they there were some who were willing to go and fight abroad um, in the First World War and some who were not so much conscient as objectors but kind of like, no, I'm going to disappear up <laughs> up into the hills and uh, yeah. we're going to seriously protest against it. Uh, obviously, the English put down the Easter arising um, and it, it caused mm. an awful lot of bitterness and you can trace the origins of the troubles and things back to that and back even further to William of Orange as well. So yeah. it's interesting how, as to me at least, how these events, which are not really taught in in schools, even though they are part of British history, um, and then definitely not England's finest moments, <laughs> um, yeah. are, are still sort of there in these songs. Because you'll hear folk bands and things cover them all the time, and you'll you'll think, "But what are you talking about? The bravest of men were vanquished." Then what 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 are you talking about? Why are you talking about the Liffey being filled with blood? in Dublin mm. what what the hell happened and it kind of prompts you to go back and look um perhaps less so with Orochidavahawalia because unless you speak Irish it's kind of like okay this is being sung quite aggressively but I don't know what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> what are you complaining about you seem to be very angry I'm not sure why <laughs> yeah it's um, <laughs> a very common thing is that as you sort of particularly when you get onto sort of later um later folk songs uh, you you get another category which is the english are terrible um the english stole my sheep un- or the english <laughs> killed my love <laughs> I, I still put that under politics really yes no absolutely but <laughs> i just i just jokingly like to imagine it as just something <laughs> different you're, you're gonna love the next one i've got to mention <laughs> <laughs> So it appears that this is going to be a two-part episode because we love folk songs so much that there's just too much to talk about in such a short period of time. Yes, definitely. So uh, bear with us and you'll get part two of this next week. (laughs) Absolutely. Before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, I believe that you've got one for us. Yes, I've just finished a book called English Pastoral by James Rebanks. I think it's Rebanks, not Rebanks. Either way, that's that's his name. And it looks at farming in in England, in Britain, basically. It's set mm-hmm. sort of in the Lake District, the Fells. And I don't know, I've got a, I felt an extremely intense emotional connection with this book because for one thing, it describes the landscape so beautifully and if you are someone who grew up like I did, sort of rurally, um, being out in nature a lot um, with a father who kind of pointed these things out to you and gave you a deep love of it, then you'll feel all of that echoed in this book. Um, but okay. it's what's it's kind of a painful read at times because it looks at basically the last of the old rotational and mixed farming models and how they were taken over largely for corporate greed by large industrial farming complexes and what mm. that is actually doing to the land 
and the fact that because everyone decided that we should all be able to eat meat whenever we wanted and we should all be able to have whatever crops we wanted all the time what we're actually doing and it's not just a case of we're destroying a few butterfly habitats it's a case of no we are actually signing our own death warrant kind of in in how we're doing this and a lot of farmers now have realized it and this is this is something that was going on as i was growing up so i saw some of it because i went to school with farmers children's and children's <laughs> farmers children and you know i played on farms and um mm. sort of li- lived out in the country so i kind of knew a lot of it but it's very different to really see behind the scenes and yet despite yeah. all that it's incredibly hopeful because the author himself now lives and works on his grandfather's farm which he inherited and it's difficult going but he's gone back to the mixed rotational um, and mixed model and he's had his soil analyzed and things and you know he's got some of the healthiest soil in, in the country kind of thing he's got mm. diversity of species so yes it's not going to make him millions and millions but at the same time he's doing so much better and there's a serious point where you need these mixed rotational farms in order to sustain the big industrial farms and yeah. there's suggestions for how yeah we can feed everyone everyone can have an equal amount you might have to pay a bit more for meat but maybe you know what we need to do is start lobbying our governments to be more realistic about these things and take an interest because people don't know so nobody's doing anything yeah Um, and there is a way forward we can we can have it and we can still look after everything because ultimately we're custodians of the countryside yeah so it was an incredibly powerful and moving book and really really beautiful so i highly recommend that one Hmm. thank you that's a really really interesting one okay guys for now we're gonna say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye bye You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. 